0: And welcome back to Issue by Issue Crisis, a DC Comics completionist podcast where we are going through the history of DC Comics, an issue at a time, starting at Crisis on Infinite Earths. Number one. That's right. It's Friday. It's the companion to the OG. It's its little brother. Issue by Issue Crisis. Uh, and we've got a... um. I'd say a little bit of a weirder episode this time. We're covering some lesser-known, uh, you know, characters uh, that I mean, personally for me, maybe maybe they they have fans out there. I know one group has fans out there: the Legion of Superheroes. And and if you've listened to this show, you uh, this show specifically, infinite on issue by issue, Crisis. You know my opinion about uh, the Legion of Superheroes. I don't really care for them. Uh, And I can't really pinpoint why, but uh, we are covering them this episode. Let's go through the issues that we're going to be covering. We're going to be doing a sort of summary only kind of talking about why I won't be talking about it. Gems, Son of Saturn, number eight, Legion of Superheroes, number nine, Omega Men, number 25, and Superman, number 406. And the all of these comics came out on January 10th, 1985, with cover dates of April 1985, so that means no real-world history, no setting the scene, because we did that last episode. That's going to happen every once in a while, uh, probably more often than not, with these, because we're at a time in history where a lot of comics are coming out on the same day. Uh, on, on January 10th alone, there's t- ten or more Probably more than 10, more than 10, 10. comics came out on the 10th uh, of January 1985. So, you know, only have to do the the history aspect of it the first time. doesn't make any sense to repeat myself and take up your precious time. There's tons of podcasts out out there. I don't need to be wasting it. Uh, but let's let's start talking about uh, the issues. Now, let's talk about Gem, Son of Saturn. This is the eighth issue in a maxi series, Gem of Son of Saturn's only titular series, his only eponymous series. Uh, it's the only Gem Son of Saturn series out there. Gem Son of Saturn is basically Martian Manhunter, but kind of less cool because Gem can't shapeshift. Instead, he can shoot beams out of his little forehead crystal. And he's from Saturn. in um, originally, in his design, he was going to be Martian Manhunter's cousin, but uh, that's that's very Supergirl of him to be, you know, a powerhouse of DC Comics's cousin. Uh, but he's his own thing. Uh, we you learn later that the Saturn Saturn Saturnians are related to the Martians through cloning and all this sort of space mumbo jumbo, but. I just don't feel that it's worth our time, your time as the listener, for us to talk about an issue in a maxi-series that we're already eight issues in, so we'd have to spend all that time recapping the first seven issues and then talk about the eighth issue of a series that doesn't really you know, have any real impact or longevity because Jem doesn't really show up a whole lot. He shows up all of 48 times I think around that in in before 2011 went with the new 52 changing all the you know classifications and then after 2011 I think he's appeared maybe once or twice in in cameo appearances Uh, not even named but you can just see him in things and I could be wrong I'm not all caught up on the new stuff gem could be a really big important part but I feel like I would have heard about that don't you think So uh, all you need to know is that this Gem Son of Saturn series is about how, you know, how Gem came to Earth. He has adventures on Earth, how he saved the last populations of Saturn um, and transported them to a moon on Jupiter and the problems they had there uh, on the colony on Jupiter. Um, But it's its own self-contained thing. It doesn't really have any sort of bearing outside of that so i didn't feel like it was necessary to talk about it but i will shout out the the creators because they worked hard on it even though we're not going to talk about it i want to give them props uh it was written by greg potter penciled by gene colon inked by bob mcleod lettered by john costanza and colored by thomas j ziuko ziuko um so that is that's that's Gem Son of Saturn number 8. Sorry for all the gem heads out there. Uh, you can team up with the Amethyst heads from uh, last week or the or the week before and get mad at me there, uh, because I skipped uh, covering a comic that doesn't really matter. Not saying that every comic matters, but just some, some do matter a little bit more than others, you know? Especially long-running series, series that have... You know, we could build some momentum. With, with these, we'd be, yeah, I don't know. And maybe that goes against the the ethos of this show. But there's just so many comics to cover that I feel better about skipping some. But talking about them, summarizing them, you know, giving the the, the listener, you guys, uh, sort of a little taste of it. And if you want to go and actually read that comic, that if that sounds interesting to you, go right ahead and read it. But uh, get mad at me, you know. Go, go, go! Yell at me on social media if you if you don't like that. I just think that that's that's what we have to do with as many thousands of comics that we have to cover if we want to make any ground uh, into like big events. We gotta we gotta skip some, and some have to go by the wayside. I'm sorry. Uh, so let's move on to uh, Legion of Superheroes number nine. Legion of Superheroes number 9 came out January 10th, 1985, with the cover date of April 1985, like every issue in this episode. And it was written by Paul Levitz, penciled by Steve Lytle, inked by Larry Malstead, lettered by John Costanza, and colored by Carl Gafford. Now... Uh, Legion of Superheroes has a lot of characters. We met five of them during the uh, DC Comics Presents uh, issue that we covered a couple, two, maybe, maybe in the first episode of issue by issue crisis. Uh, but uh, let's talk about the other ones that we're going to meet in this episode that are debuting on the podcast but not obviously debuting uh, in their comic book. They've been around for a long time so we're gonna we're gonna run through them quite quickly. We've got and I'm not gonna describe all of them because I don't even know that much about them either and it's not very important. Uh, I'll describe them generally. Um, and when we get to them in the issue, I can describe them physically. Uh, so we have Block, he's like a big alien, like a big rock alien, chameleon boy who we've met, colossal boy, cosmic boy, dream girl, element lad, invisible kid, lightning lass, mon L. phantom girl, shadow lass, shrinking violet, star boy, sun boy, Timberwolf, wolf, ultra boy, white witch, and wildfire. Uh, so that's a lot. And... I've, I've talked about why I'm not a big fan of the Legion of Superheroes, uh, and it's, to me, uh, because a lot of their stories just are off in their own universe. They could never come in contact with the DC universe, and most of the time it wouldn't really matter. And also, I don't like their names, because like so, uh, we, you, we see in this issue that two of them are married. Or, like, one of them is married. They're adults, but they're still running around being like, Invisible Kid and Cosmic Boy. It's like, I'm 25 years old. Please stop calling me boy and kid. I just don't get it. Just update the names, and I would have less of a problem. Um, And also, you just have to know a lot about the Legion of Superheroes in order to understand the stories uh, to a certain extent. You have to have a lot of background knowledge about... The 30th and then 31st century, and also the, you know, United Union of Planets. But uh, I digress. Let's get into the actual issue. The issue itself, or like the cover itself, is very, very cool. We see a lot of, uh, basically all of the Legion of Superheroes uh, on top of sort of these two black silhouettes of a man's face, who we later learn is Element Lad, and uh, a woman, And they're coming together, like, getting very close. Like, maybe they're going to kiss. Maybe they're going to do a little smooch. Uh, So that's exciting. Uh, I will say a lot of the costumes of of the Legion of Superheroes are very good. Wildfires in particular. I know it's like a containment suit, but it's very cool to me. Uh, Cosmic Lad's also cool. He's, you know, he looks like Donna Troy when she's in her Dark Star uh, phase. It's cool. Uh, But let's get into the actual issue. It starts in the Legion of Superheroes headquarters on Earth in 2985 because the Legion of Superheroes is always exactly 1,000 years after the current uh, DC continuity. So we're in 1985; they're in 2985. Um, so the the person in charge is Dream Girl. She's sitting in the uh, leader's spot, and she is talking about continuing as acting leader. Uh, of the temporarily diminished Legion of superheroes. Now, why is the team diminished? Because five of the members were sent to a sort of limbo dimension, which we met them in DC Comics Presents number 80 uh, a few episodes ago. So that's kind of fun that they kind of tied in the fact that these five characters are missing, or maybe they were forced to make five of these characters go missing in order for them to appear with any sort of, uh, rationality in DC Comics Presents. That's very, that's interesting, like from an editorial standpoint and also from like a writing standpoint, uh, the way that writers sort of take what editorial needs from them and kind of bends it so that it makes sense, uh, or, or can make sense, um, uh, and all the members are like, that's that's fine, that's fine. Uh, but you should, we should acknowledge that elections are coming up, so Dream Girl might not be in the position of acting leader for long, uh, or Element Lad, who is the actual leader at the moment. He's been elected in, but he's missing right now, as we know. Uh, but uh, Cosmic Boy says uh, that. He thinks that they should postpone. He's the, he's the only active founding member of the Legion of superheroes apparently. Uh, it says Wildfire to Cosmic Boy. Uh, and he says that he thinks that they should postpone it until there's more of a quorum. And uh, they say that they've, they've done they've changed election rules a few times in the past so that it wouldn't be crazy for them to change it so that they can wait until their other members return and they're a full uh, complement of, of legionnaires again. Uh, we then have some con- uh, conversation between the Legionnaires, uh, specifically, uh, I'm sorry, Starboy. He th- thinks that it is time uh, to... Wait, no, not sorry. I'm just, I'm sorry, you're going to have to bear with me. They all are, uh, they have so many names, there's so many characters, so I get some of them confused. So, Dream Girl. Tells us about Brainiac 5 and Dawnstar. They are in the process of trying to find the five uh, Legionnaires that are missing. And a lot of this story is kind of confusing or missing. Because at the same time that this issue of Legion of Superheroes or this series of Legion of Superheroes is going on. There is a separate Legion of Superheroes story or series going on called Tales of the Legion of Superheroes, I believe, that has a different story. So that's where Dawnstar is, and that's where Brainiac 5 is. They're over there in that book at the moment uh, doing their own thing. Um, But Cosmic Boy, no, not Cosmic Boy. Yes, Cosmic Boy, sorry. Cosmic Boy and Star Boy both think that it's time for them there to uh, expand the Legion in case the five Legionnaires don't return soon or at all, ever, um, because they can't keep working with diminished numbers because everyone's being, you know, run, run ran ragged, everyone's exhausted, and so they need more people. So Dreamgirl uh, declares uh, that there's going to be tryouts and asks Wildfire to round up uh, some possible members, possible tryout members, and uh, Wildfire says that he can do that, but he needs a couple weeks because it's a big galaxy. That's true, and it's ever expanding. Dream Girl is about to get the meeting back on track so she can continue, you know, leading it so they can get done and, and you know go on about their day. When, uh, when from off screen, someone says, afraid not, Dream Girl. I can't wait to get back in my long lost leader's chair again." And we then see close-ups of all of the legionnaires that are at the meeting and they're all just like shocked they're like what element lad they're back bon dieu because invisible kid is french he says bon dieu and they're like huh what what's going on and then we see we cut to the five legionnaires that we met in dc comics presents number 80 and they're all you know they're back safe and ready for action they don't really explain how they got back um uh, but uh, or I think they do in a, in a page or so. And uh, they everyone you know they hug and they say glad you're back. Everyone's very happy. It's 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 all it's always nice when you see your friends again. Um, uh, we then cut to uh, Catskill Park, which is in the northwest of Metropolis, and we see this blonde woman who we later learn her name is Shavon, uh, but not how you would spell it normally, because we're in the future, so at least I don't think that's how you spell it, because how they spell it is S-H-V-A-U-G-N, Shavon. and uh, I, I don't think that's how it's spelled, so she is out there, she is scanning for life, uh, she's scanning for, for a, a small boy uh, who is the son of Zendak, uh, Chief Zendak of some sort of organization. I'm not sure what her affiliation is. Maybe, like, Galaxy Police or something. She seems like she's some sort of police officer or a peacekeeper uh, agent. She finds him, and his leg is stuck underneath a uh, tree. And, and by the way, his name is Simon Zendak, and Simon is spelled S-Y-M-Y-N because it's the future, so you have to spell words differently, just like Siobhan. Uh, and... She's about to blast the tree away with some sort of blaster, probably, you know, uh, a gun, when the tree just turns into what looks like water, and she's shocked, and she turns and sees, coming out of the the shadows of of the underbrush of the trees, Element Lad, and she calls him Jan or Jan. I don't know if he's maybe Swedish or if it's Jan or if it's Jan. Uh, and they kiss oh they Mac uh that you know they embrace they're very they're excited to be reunited and she you know she asks like where's he been like how are you all right and when did you get back like and and she's saying it so fast that the letterer just decided not to put spaces in between any of the words and i think it does a good job of conveying that she's saying things very fast uh element lads explains that it's a long story but after they tracked uh, a group of supervillains to Orondo, which is a, a, a world in the un, the Union of Planets or the United Planets. I don't know what UP stands for, uh, but uh, it's a, a planet that's sort of stuck in sort of medieval times. Uh, the planet got stuck in limbo between dimensions. And they've been spending all this time trying to get back from that sort of limbo dimension. They, you know, obviously they jumped through that area where it was that world of Superman. And now they're back through uh, to the to the future, to the regular dimension. Um, they save Simon Zendak. They return him to his father. And then later, the Legionnaires are having a gathering. Uh, everyone's, you know conversing, reminiscing, yeah, it's nice, everyone's back, and they're just kind of in their off times, they're all in the, most of them are in their civvies, uh, except for a few people, Wildfire, obviously, because I don't think he can ever leave that containment suit, mon is still wearing his, uh, his costume, some of them, you know, but a lot of them are wearing casual clothes, and they're all talking, they're all having conversations, uh, and its it's all, it's, everyone's having a great time. When... Uh, when Shrinking Violet, uh, who we've met before, uh, walks up to uh, a group of people talking uh, with Chameleon Boy, and um, she pulls Chameleon Girl out of the group, and they have a uh, confrontation in the hallway where Shrinking Violet is mad at Chameleon Girl for impersonating her identity um, previously, And uh, Shrinking Violet says, if I ever hear about you doing that again, you'll be so sorry. And then she storms off. Uh, So she's mad. Uh, Timberwolf walks through a teleporter gate, futuristic door, and bumps into Shrinking Violet. And um, he seems really distracted. He helps her up, but then he kind of sort of mutters to himself and uh, walks away. Block, who is uh, the big rock man uh, who uh, is, is much bigger than uh, everyone and one of the few non-humans. I guess a lot of them are non-humans. They're just humanoid aliens uh, on the team. And him and Shrinking Violet have a conversation about Timberwolf. And uh, Shrinking Violet just thinks that he's lovesick over Lightning Lass. And Block says, ah, oh, there's probably more to it than that. And, and then we cut to... Timberwolf, and he is getting into a car with an alien-looking man named Zerf, Z-I-I-R-F. And uh, they they proceed to drive away from the headquarters of the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, we then cut to elsewhere in Metropolis to a, quote-unquote, more private party. Hoo-hoo, <laughs> ho-ho. And it is it is Element Lad, or Jan, and uh, Siobhan... Uh, Sort of cuddled up on a couch in a dark, futuristic looking living room, uh, likely Siobhan's uh, residence. And uh, they're, you know, they're getting, they're getting, they're about to get hot and heavy, I should say. And uh, Jan stops things from moving forward because he says that he promised while he was gone that he was going to have a long talk with her when he came back. And tell her all his secrets, you know, be very open. But he's embarrassed. Um, but he says, "I can't keep anything from you, Siobhan." And she says, "Great, you can tell me all about it, m-dash later." And they're, you know, they're in, they're in flagrante uh, or, or pre flagrante, and uh, uh, the phone rings. It goes beep. And on the on the uh, screen is. A man, I think it's Siobhan's boss, and uh, he's calling about an emergency in Hong Kong, and he wanted to let her know that he's called the Legion of Superheroes, which I don't know why she needs to know that he's called in the Legion of Superheroes, but whatever. Then uh, Element Lad's Legionnaire ring, which is the rings they wear that allow all of them to fly, because I don't believe any of them can fly without it. Uh, he's got a message from, uh, Dream Girl. She is, uh, informing him about the trouble in Hong Kong. And, uh, he says, you know, he says he'll go and he'll take a team with him of Invisible Kid, Shrinking Violet, Lightning Lass, and Chameleon Boy. And he then tells Siobhan that he has to, uh, go and she, and he hopes that she understands. And she says, Uh, Unfortunately, she does because, I mean, they both have, you know, high, high stress jobs. We then have a couple of scenes that feel like um, they are storylines that took place during the previous eight issues or possibly from uh, overlap from the tales of Legion of Superheroes, the other series, although I hope they wouldn't do that. Uh, where we see uh, R.J. Brand, who I believe is the president or uh, president of the Union of Planets, uh, and if I'm getting that wrong, I feel dumb saying if that's wrong. Let's see, uh, Union of Planets. No, not Planetary Union. Um, United Federation of Planets. That sounds like. No, that's Star Trek. That's Star Trek. That's my B. Legion of Superheroes United Planets Oh, United Planets. Okay, so it's United Planets. Alright. Okay, so he's like the President of or Lord Premier of the United Planets. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The Legion just confuses me and you can obviously see why. But he goes into a dark alley, following this robot, and someone watching, overseeing this, says, "Fascinating." R.J. Brandt holding a meeting with the Proteans, a supporter perhaps. Odd. So, hopefully, we'll learn what that's about. Uh, we then cut to Legion Academy, which, I mean, the name seems very straightforward. It seems like an academy for uh, possible Legion legionnaires, and we see that. Uh, a one of the legionnaires has been shot it's a uh, laurel gand and they mentioned that the bullet is probably kryptonite because she is a daxamite just like mon El. so they get affected similarly by kryptonite as uh as uh, kryptonians do uh, a little bit uh, and i will say right now uh laurel gand's costume is probably the worst thing i've ever seen ever in terms of uh making female characters just like sex objects cuz it's not covering basically anything and i don't know if that's from like pulling the bullet out like she got to expose part of her skin but it's uh it's not a great look uh and this uh police officer who's asking about the uh the shooting like how could the bullet penetrate her and uh bouncing boy or bouncing lad bouncing person. He says it's probably kryptonite. And uh, the police officer says, kryptonite, sure, I'll tell the chief. If I can only crack this case, he'll finally take me seriously. And then Bouncing Boy says, you might look for a motive too, officer. And the officer, who this whole time has been looking very suspicious. He says, hmm, good thought. So hopefully we'll also find out what that is about. We then cut to Hong Kong. And Hong Kong in the 30th century is, yeah, in the 30th century is just basically a big mall, uh, a big, it it says, principal island covered entirely with interstellar traders, mall, mercantile guide to the inner worlds. So it's a big mall. Uh, And and there seems to be some catastrophe going on, some commotion, and the police are uh, having some trouble dealing with it. Uh, there's uh, things are on fire, but they're claiming that that's only a distraction. The alarms and ray blasts are, are coming from a different section of the mall. Um, and, and one of the police officers gets shot and almost falls off of a sort of walkway. Chameleon Boy turns into a big airbag sort of situation and catches the police officer saving him. We then see the rest of the team that has been sent here. Um, chasing after some unseen people, uh, shooting rays at people or blasting at people. And uh, Shrinking Violet dodges some some beams by shrinking down and and getting out of the way. Element Lad turns uh, nitrogen into inerton, which is a material, and he makes a shield out of it. Uh, And Lightning Lass uh, can use it to kind of hide behind to shoot her lightning... And I, I, earlier in the comic, it was mentioned that um, Lightning Lass used to be Light Lass, and but now she's Lightning Lass again. I don't know if she was like retired or her, her powers were different, because every time she uses her powers, the other Legionnaires are just like shocked and confused because the thing, like the blasts coming out of her hands, do not look like lightning, a, eh? but they do look like wicked powerful. So she sends off two crackling blasts uh, of energy out of her hands down the hallway. And she says that that should clear the, the passageway. Um, and then they come around the corner uh, to discover a part of the mall that has just been absolutely shell-shocked, just rocked. Uh, it's, everything is crumbling. And Element Lad thinks that for a second that it was Lightning Lass who did it. But she says, no, someone's ripped the guts out of this section of, of, the, of the mall. Uh, and pieces of the building start to fall down. Light, or element Lad uh, barely gets out of the way. And then he turns oxygen into iron to make a big support beam uh, to hold up the crumbling ceiling. Uh, invisible Kid uh, is trapped underneath some rubble. And uh, lightning glass blasts it off of him. And uh, he says thank you, and uh, he informs the rest of the team that he saw the intruders as they were escaping, and he says that they are Sklarians. Now Sclarians are from the planet Sklar, and they are uh, obsessed with technology and stealing technology uh, because for the longest time before they joined the United Planets, they uh, didn't really they were really really far back in technological development. And so they got a little bit of te- They got a taste, you know, they got a taste of it. And then they're addicted. They want more technology. And it's all women. It's an all-female society, very much like uh, the Amazons. So we then cut to above Hong Kong, where we are on a commercial flight. Uh, uh, there is a robot uh, flight attendant who is serving in-flight meals. Two uh, people, and we see two people sitting in seats are Timberwolf and Zerf. And we learn that Timberwolf has been distracted because Karate Kid, who was one of his teammates who recently died a couple issues ago, uh, has, has sort of declared him the executor of his will. And so he's like, you know, it's a lot... It's a a lot to be, you know, dumped on a person. And uh, Zerf says, uh, The circumstances have left several billion credits dependent on you. And uh, Timberwolf is so shocked by this amount that he drops his futuristic food in some sort of futuristic uh, gravy or porridge or bowl. And so he's shocked. Then we cut back down to mainland Hong Kong. Uh, where the the infiltration group or the the field team has uh, uh, rendezvoused or reconvened outside of the Sklarian embassy, and they are going to bust in and figure out why they attacked the that section of, of Hong Kong, and you know if they can find any information about that inside the embassy obviously breaking into an embassy is illegal it is sovereign soil uh, at least that's how it works now I'm, I'm not sure if it's the same in the 30th century but uh invisible kid has some theories um like that they uh it could be the government it could be the planetary government or it could be just some citizens wishing to steal something for themselves. Um, an organ bank, like stealing from an organ bank or an anti-geriatric, which I don't know what that is because it's, uh, the future could be anything like an anti-aging place. I don't know. So the, uh, the members of the team that are infiltration specialists. So chameleon boy, shrinking violet and invisible kid are going to sneak into the embassy while element lad and lightning glass kind of just chill outside. Uh, chameleon boy turns himself into a sclarion. Uh, so he turns himself into a lady. Shrinking Violet shrinks and hides in Chameleon Boy's hair. And Invisible Kid obviously turns invisible. That's his whole shtick. Uh, lightning Lass shorts out the guard system. Uh, and again, in this in this panel, she uses her electricity, and you can see like uh, light, Invisible Kid is like shocked. He's like kind of whoa about it. So she must have lost her powers for a while there. And so they are infiltrating, and everything is going as planned. Invisible Kid is obviously invisible, so he doesn't have any problems. But Chameleon Boy has to sort of also act the part of a Sklarian, walk the way they walk, talk the way they talk, and uh, he is successful in doing that. He, you know, he's he's putting his weight on the lead on the leading foot, and he he walks by members of of the Sklarian embassy without notice. So that's all good, but. After that, he changes into a bug because that'll be easier for information gathering. He turns into a small bug and Shrinking Violet uh, shrinks down and rides on top of him uh, like it's a uh, honey-I-shrunk-the-kids sort of situation. They then get into an office and they are reading uh, shipping forms uh, for the Sklarian Embassy um, and, and, and they see that they are shipping frozen organs to to sklar uh which is against united Planetary policy and so that's that's not good that's bad that's illegal so it's it's clear that they were Uh, they did attack it was a government it was the government of sklar that attacked that part of hong kong uh and as they're down here on this piece of paper uh one of the people in the embassy rolls up a newspaper and uh, st- attempts to swat them uh, because they think they're bugs, and when you see a bug, you swat it. Shrinking Violet, it has uh, anger issues. Obviously, we saw that earlier with her sort of uh, giving chameleon girl the business. And so she gets big and punches the person who attempted to swat her right in the face. And so then obviously things go things break bad from that point. Uh, chameleon Boy turns into a gorilla grabs shrinking violet and jumps out a window then turns into maybe like a hawk or a small bird and flies to where element lad and lightning glass are. And, uh, <laughs> element lad said, did things get out of hand chameleon boy and shrinking violet fesses up. She says, it wasn't him. It was my temper getting in the way. And she says, sorry, but she says, luckily I don't think we were recognized. Uh, so that's some cons- consolation there. Uh, but, unfortunately, they didn't really get any hard information that would prove that the Sklarians raided the the part of the mall, uh, part of Hong Kong. Uh, but, Invisible Kid appears suddenly and says, Pardon, but perhaps I have, voila, an organ bag with the Mart's labeling and shipping instructions. So... They did. They stole organs from this, what must be some sort of organ march. They didn't explain that earlier at all, that they were stealing things from an organ store. Uh, So that's unfortunate. It kind of made this very confusing to me reading it and also to me explaining it to you. Uh, They then, you know, hustled to the spaceport of Hong Kong, which they explain is out in the water because on land, it's, you know, real estate is... Very pricey, so they put the spaceport where they could. They put it on a floating platform in the, you know, along shore, in the, in the bay or, or in, the, in the water surrounding Hong Kong. Uh, the, uh, the team attempts to infiltrate, or starts to infiltrate the spaceport uh, where the Sclarians are. Element Lad turns the robot's silicon circuits uh, to lead, which is a non-conductor, so they all of a sudden just stop, and these are sort of transportation, or not transportation, but like loading cargo bots, uh, cargo robots, they're specifically called, and so they stop loading the cargo onto the Sclarian ship, and uh, the person in charge of overseeing this, the Sclarian in charge of overseeing this, uh, starts to radio into the rest of the Sclarian you know, people in the spaceport, Uh, and she says, uh, Syndra, we're having robot trouble. If we can't lift the ship tonight, we'll get re-inspected. And before she can say anything more, uh, uh, it looks like Shrinking Violet puts a hand over her mouth and stops her from saying anymore, and knocks her out. Uh, And Chameleon Boy sort of uh, disguises his voice and says... Uh, uh, he says, bring everyone to the ship. Syndra will load by hand. So they're going to get all the Sklarians by the ship so they can, you know, ambush them. And so the, the Sklarians do come to the to the loading bay, and they're confused by why they would do it by hand. Why wouldn't they just fix the cargo bots? And, um, Chameleon Boy, disguised as Sklarian, says, uh, we could, but they'll just fall apart again in a second. They're, they seem to be just absolutely busted. Invisible, the kid then becomes uninvisible and uh, says, uh, Absolument, like your robbery plan, uh, which will fall apart in a second. Uh, the leader of the Sklarians is, says, Oh, Legionnaire, let's get out of here, because Legionnaires are the superhero fighting team, basically the only one left, or the only one in the 30th century. So, like, they're well known. Uh, but, but another one says there's only one of them. Let's not quit now. We can we can take one. And uh, uh, invisible kid says Paul Paul, sorry, my French is terrible. He says Paul, pauvre, pauvre mademoiselle. I am far from alone. And then uh, lightning lass, and element lad, and shrinking violet appear. Uh, they say they want them to go quietly, but if not. Lightning Lass sends out uh, an electrical field sort of binding all of them and uh, presumably knocking them out and uh, so they can capture them. We don't see any more of it. It cuts to another scene. Uh, back in Metropolis, it looks like it is morning. We see Siobhan has fallen asleep on the couch, probably just very sad. Uh, and she is uh, kissed on the cheek by a man who we then see his legs and his hand, uh, and it looks, it's Element Lad, obviously. He takes his legionnaire flight ring off and throws it, uh, I don't know, in a corner, and says, I'm off duty. And she says, all I can say is, it's about time. And then it cuts to black, because you know, because you know what they're going to do. They're going to, you know, in flagrante. Um, which I know that's not the proper use of the, the Latin, but we all know what's going to happen. Uh, so that is the that is the the issue. Legion of Superheroes number nine, very confusing to me. Very confusing, probably to you as well. Uh, sorry about that, but I think the Legionnaires or the Legion of Superheroes stories are always just kind of complicated because there's too many gosh dang characters. There's too much information you already need to know beforehand, no matter what. No matter, You have to basically know all of the history of the Legion of Superheroes in order to really understand everything that is mentioned or said. So I'm sorry to all the Legion fans out there if I butchered it, but that's, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Uh, so let's move on to the next issue, uh, which will be Omega Men number 25. Now, you may be asking yourself, Now, Nick, why did you skip Amethyst? and Jem, son of Saturn, who have about as much impact on the DC Universe as the Omega Men. And to that I'd say, fair enough, but uh, the reason I am covering this is because later on in this series, there is a tie-in issue to Crisis on Infinite Earth. Earths, same way with Vigilante uh, a couple episodes ago. Because later in Vigilante's series, there is also a tie-in with Crisis on Infinite Earth. So I want to make sure that we're getting as much out of Crisis on Infinite Earth as possible because I think it's a very, very good event. And obviously it's setting up the whole reboot of a universe, so I think if we have as much information as possible, that's, that's great. Um, but let's talk about the, the nitty-gritty of this issue. Uh, it is written by Doug... Mench, or Monch, M-O-E-N-C-H, penciled by Sean McManus, inked by Pablo Marcos, lettered by Ben Oda, and colored by Carl Gafford. Now, before we get into the actual issue of of the Omega Men number 25, let's talk about the Omega Men. Uh, Like the Legion of Superheroes, uh, they are a group of uh, aliens who banded together to fight Injustice, but a very specific kind of Injustice. They're more of a guerrilla faction in a uh, war with the Citadel. And the Citadel is a group that has taken control of the Vega system, and if you know anything about Green Lantern lore, the Vega system is important because it is the home of Okara, uh, OK. A-A-R-A, uh, which is the home of um, Larflees and the Orange Lantern Corps, um, but they are not around at this point. The other lantern colors are not uh, existent. Uh, they don't exist, is probably a better way to say that, yet they don't be, they're not developed until after the turn of the of the century and into the 2000s. Um, but the Omega Man... Come from Green Lantern. Uh, they debuted in, in Green Lantern. Uh, and so the, the, the Vega system has been taken control, uh, taken over by the Citadel. And only a few planets are still free and, and not being controlled by this sort of dictatorship or uh, anything. And one of those planets is Euphorix. Uh, and it is ruled by uh, Queen Callista. Uh, who is the main character of this issue. Um, Her and her husband, Primus, uh, along with other uh, alien species from across the Vega system, joined together to form the Omega Men to fight back against the Citadel. Things have happened uh, in, in these first 25 issues. Um uh Callista, for a while, was with the Omega Men, but now she has returned to uh, take up the mantle of Queen again uh, on the planet uh, Euphorix Primus uh, could, could have stayed and, and been her prince Conco- consort, sort of the similar to how um, uh, Queen Elizabeth II and her husband were, uh, her being the queen and him not being king, uh, but being prince consort. Uh, But Primus is the leader of the Omega Men, so he is off fighting the Citadel in other parts of the Vega system. Um, And we'll explain some other things about what's happened on Euphorics throughout this issue, uh, but let's get into uh, the issue itself. The cover has a nice, very sort of uh, parabolic-shaped title of the Omega Men, and of course the O in Omega Men is the Omega symbol, uh, which will later be obviously, uh, taken, uh, as a symbol by Darkseid, uh, once he is, uh, you know, fully developed, although I believe he does exist, the Dark World, or the, the Fourth World does exist at this point, I believe. Um, but we then see, uh, Calista riding on an alien horse, uh, through an alien environment and hiding behind a tree is a gray, uh, four-armed alien, um, with uh, many protrusions, uh, we learn later that this is a, a, Branx, a B-R-A-N-X, uh B-R-A-N-X, who are an alien species that are also from the Vega system, but they are aligned with the Citadel. Uh, so they are they are bad guys. So to start the issue off, we are on Euphorix, uh, and we are we see Callista and uh, must be a guard uh, or a personal you know attendant. Uh, named Rourke, who are flying on a, you know, s- space sci-fi sort of scooter or travel, some means of conveyance. I, they call it something, uh, so they call it a skimmer. So it, it hovers and, and can fly, and it, it looks very much like a moped uh, in the sense that you sit on it, you straddle it like you would a motorcycle or a, or a moped or something like that. Uh, and they are leaving the capital... Uh, of Euphorics to, uh, on some sort of clandestine mission, Uh, they say that they are, um, they've said that they've left word that they are going to the Summer Palace for three days of rest. We don't know what their mission is at this point in the issue, they haven't said, uh, but they are heading to the Summer Palace, presumably. Um, Not for three days of rest, though. They stop at a place called the Arbor, which is a collection of trees, Arbor being, you know, a word for trees. Um, and Rourke goes ahead to the summer palace while uh, Callista is going to walk through uh, the arbor and reminisce about her childhood. And so she begins that and as, as we as we uh, as human beings also do, she sees that the what, what she remembers from her childhood has changed. ...and grown more heavy and dark with uh, the time. And she, she wonders why that is, if it is um, something that it, it, it was always this way... ...and just simply the light-hearted nature of being a child uh, allowed her to see it in a different way. And now, being an adult who's seen death and destruction and dark and terrible things throughout her life... ...is she now seeing it through a different lens which is a very philosophical and and weighty thing to be thinking about while walking through the forest. Uh, So she gets to the Summer Palace finally after walking through the arbor. Obviously it wasn't that far away, because otherwise she wouldn't have told Rourke to go ahead. So coming out the other side of the arbor, she gets there, and the Summer Palace is just in ruins. Um, I mean, not in ruins, it's not a ruin, but it is derelict and crumbling. Uh, It... It is it is a palace that is being held up by a giant tree. Uh it, it is basically a big stone treehouse. Which this is a big tree. So I guess it's okay if it's made of stone, but still very big very very big palace to be put on a tree. Uh we then see a sort of cloaked, robed figure and I th- I thought immediately like, "Oh no, this is something bad," but it's not. It's it's some it's the caretaker of the the summer palace. We learn that this person's name is Shirilla, and uh, she, you know, says, "You know, gone to seed is the proper term." Callista, the whole glade is overgrown and run down. What with me being the only one to care for it and getting no nearer my springtime, mind you. So she's she's an old, elderly woman. She walks around with a cane. Sheer neglect is what's done it. So it's it's been neglected. I mean, war. With the citadel has been taxing on both the planet of Euphorix and, and the the monarchy and the and the people that live on the uh, planet itself. So it it does it's not you know, in times of war you don't often have time to deal with infrastructure and or, or with going to the summer palace. You know you kind of have to stay in the capital near. Your military, your generals, so you can strategize and stuff like that. So they uh, are going to go inside and uh, have tea, and and, and then uh, Callista is going to do her mission. But uh, Callista sends Sh- Shirilla and Rourke inside so she can sort of reminisce some more about her childhood. And she reminisces, reminiscence, reminisces. That doesn't sound right but uh, back to another time in her childhood when she was playing uh, outside the Summer Palace and uh, her parents were there, the, the former king and queen of Euphorix. And they go inside and she wants to stay outside because the nighttime is when all the cool stuff happens out here in the, um, out here in the wilderness. And, and so she, she's allowed to do that. So she waits a bit and suddenly just the environment goes crazy uh the in a good way uh the the, the fountain shoots up so high all by itself Buds on the trees bloom, spark flies cluster overhead in perfect formations. The entire glade uh shrugged off its sluggish stupidity, breaking loose in raucously swirling abandon. And so she's having a great time with this. It's all it's all fun and um fun and games. And uh one of the favorite parts, or one of her favorite parts, is the uh, uh which are these little I would say gopher slash mouse things that live underground and uh Shirilla, back in the present has said that the pulvidons have eaten away at the inside of the tree uh ruining its its structural integrity uh and the, being the foundation of the summer palace uh you don't want that to happen uh you don't want uh vermin to uh get all up inside there and ruin the structure of your uh, palace so she's having fun playing with the Polvadons. Uh, she has... We, we later learn that she is... Or actually, we'll learn in a page. One second. Uh, sh- uh, out from out from the the underbrush comes a... I, I guess... Well, in, in the 80s, colors are so weird. Um, so I don't know if he has red hair or if he is a blonde. But it's like... Maybe... Or... Strawberry blonde, I guess I would say. A strawberry blonde-haired boy uh, with long hair comes out. And uh, he says, or Calissa says, who are you? And he says, somebody you're going to get to know a lot better, even if I am a farmer instead of a wood witch like you. Uh, The name's Primus. And Primus is her husband, obviously, as we know, uh, leader of the Omega Men. And basically what happened is they both have these sort of similar powers. Um... And the reason that the environment went crazy is because they were both near each other and their magic was working together to sort of do that. Uh, Primus then has to go very quickly, uh, and Callista's mom calls for her to come back to the palace. And so she says goodbye to the Pulvidons and also goodbye to the past as we go back to the present, where Callista uh, is walking up the stairs of the summer palace. She almost falls when a uh, stone of the steps crumbles away, uh, but she she makes it up into the Summer Palace. And she says it's now time for her mission, which we have still not found out about. But what she does uh, before that is do a costume change. And just to tell you what she was wearing before, she was wearing a purple or pink uh, costume that was uh not I mean it it was not unrevealing, but it was it was kind of revealing. It has uh something similar to Power Girl's boob window. Uh there's that and it's 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 sort of sort of slit up at the sides and just the, the center is, is covered from the waist down. Um so, I mean, not modest by any means, but what she changes into is uh I guess uh, it's it's it is her wood witch costume. It's the it's the the attire that she wore when she first became a, a, she gained control of her hex powers. Uh, but it's very very revealing. Uh, now it's it's basically exposed down to her belly button with you know lines or like strings across to keep the fabric covering the parts that need to be covered, and uh she's got. Thigh-high socks, but the socks also have holes in them uh, along the sides. And she's got long gloves up to her, like, I guess, mid-bicep. mid, mid uh, bicep. And a shorter a shorter cloak. It's very revealing, is, is all I can say. And it's weirdly frilly at the edges. Um, we'll see close-ups of it later in, in what are called cheesecake shots, which basically just zoom in on parts of women's bodies in, in media. Uh, to sort of you know it's sex objects classic uh, for the industry uh, but she is now going to go out on her mission um, and even Sharila is kind of like well if that if her mission really is a mission and not something else based on her costume or uh, what she's wearing and Rourke you know Rourke shuts that down and say hey don't even think about that she is our queen and she is married so uh, Callista gets onto a space horse, uh, alien horse, and, uh, rides across, uh, the arbor to a, uh, old, uh, hunting lodge, which is made out of the, uh, large stump of a tree. And a man opens the door, a man with white skin and white hair, and he, is, and behind him is that group of aliens, the Branks, because, um... So Callista is shocked by this. Uh, We learn that this man's name is Alonzo Dulak, D-U-L-A-K. And to give some backstory on him so that any of this issue will make sense to you, because I had to do some research in order for any to make sense to me. While Callista went off to be uh, part of the Omega Men, she left the, you know, ruling scepter, the person in charge, she left Alonzo in charge, um, and he did—he did quite well. He he created a, a planetary shield that uh, kept the Citadel from invading, and basically made it so that Euphorix was one of the few planets that is still free. So a big part of you know Euphorix still being around and still being free is Alonzo, but he has been banished. Uh, And he was banished because after Callista returned to take up the throne again, after her time with the Omega Men, uh, Primus had to stay with the Omega Men because he is the leader, uh, so he was off-planet. And basically, Alonzo, through nefarious means, tricked or convinced Callista to put the shield up. And uh, either he convinced her to destroy the controls, or he destroyed the controls, so that it couldn't be taken down. Which means that nobody could get in. Which kind of seems short-sighted, because how are you supposed to get goods off planet or on planet? I may and maybe Euphorix is a a self-sustaining planet, so it doesn't need imports and exports. Uh, but uh, in a time of space travel and, and interplanetary, you know, economies. Feels like importing and exporting is a big part of any planet's economy, but uh, so. But the reason he did this is because he is in love with Callista and wants her all to himself, and and this way it kept Primus away uh, from from the planet and from Callista. So after Callista found out, she banished him off planet, um, and basically this mission involves that involves his banishment. So uh, Alonzo explains that these. Aliens, uh, this group of uh, Branks, B-R-A-N-X, uh, were his means of transportation uh, to the planet uh, because his uh, the ship that he was on didn't last long, so he, he lost the ship that he was banished on. So they were they were just a way to get him here to the planet. Uh, and they explain that, say, they, they're here only for transportation, but also to protect Alonzo... As well, and uh, Callista doesn't take this, you know, lightly. She says, "You know, how dare you imply that I would lay a trap for him?" Um, And and Alonzo says, "Please, they're just—they're rough. They're—they're blunt. Their—Their culture is very blunt. Uh, It's—it's okay." But Callista says that the business that they're here to take care of cannot be done while these uh, Branks are in the room. So Alonzo has to banish the Branks from the room. Banish is such a strong word. He asks them to leave the lodge uh, and wait for him outside. Um, and <laughs> Alonzo, thinking the same way as Shorilla, is wondering if their business is business or if it's business, with quotes around it. And Callista's like, what do you mean? Uh, and... <laughs> Alonzo says, I do not believe that such feelings as I harbor could exist were they not buoyed if only from under the surface. Uh, So Alonzo thinks that um, she is here for him in in a loving fashion, but she says, Alonzo, I'm married. And Alonzo gets mad and says, but your husband is gone. He has abandoned you to others. And Calista is going to say, that's not true. He only, you know, he's, she's going to explain that he has to be with the Omega Men since he's the leader. And then Alonzo says, and to Calista, there is the matter and manner of your dress. And this is where we get one of the cheesecake shots, uh, which, because for some reason, Callista, she's in conversation with Alonzo, but she is facing away from him. And so the camera, the quote unquote camera of the comic, of the page, is pointed directly at her butt. Uh, and it is close up and very detailed uh, uh, look at her butt. And yeah, as we see on the clothes, it is frilly at the edges, and it's obviously very revealing. Uh, and so she is you know, she's like, oh well, this is my this is my woodwitch costume from when I first became, you know, attuned with my powers. And she explains that since she arrived in in this place and the arbor and all this kind of stuff, she's been sort of lost in nostalgia for her past. And obviously when she, when she first became uh, a wood, witch, got her powers as a time of nostalgia for her, but uh, she embraces Alonzo and says that she's just so confused. The affairs of state, they prey on her. They take all of her time. This are the decisions are so weighty and important and they tax her in her heart and her conscience. And since Primus left to, lead the Omega Men and, and since she banished Alonzo she really doesn't have anybody close to talk to and Alonzo says that he's back and that he loves her and this is the first time he's ever expressed that he loves her like in those words um and she breaks the embrace and says no Alonzo uh I, I, lest our tongues betray us we shall speak n- on love no more so, it's time to get down to the actual business of why she came here. And basically, the business is that she feels that she acted rashly in banishing Alonzo off-planet. Because, I mean, imagine... I, what he did was bad and treasonous, probably, uh, to, to you know, uh, do that. To, to kind of bend the Queen to his, uh, his whims, uh, to his will. I guess you... I mean, that's not necessarily treason, but she explains that he acted against her wishes, but he only followed his own conscience for what he believed to be good for our world, which I think, if you read anything about what Alonzo did, doesn't really feel like he did it. I mean, sure, it protected the planet, the, the planetary shield, but he also did it for his own, you know, reasons. Uh, did it protect the planet? Sure. Was it maybe for the betterment of it? Maybe. Maybe. Uh, protecting it and making sure it's free is a good thing, but I don't know. Um, she, but she thinks that the punishment was too severe, and uh, and so she feels like she wants she wants to do something to rectify the situation. We then cut to the spacecraft that uh, Alonzo and the Branks... Uh, Cayman, and we see inside that the Branks are having a communique with um, some man with a monocle. We learn that this is a a, a Lord Harry Hokum, H-O-K-U-M, who is a, a high-ranking member of the Citadel. So the Branks are clearly still aligned with the Citadel, and they have nefarious purposes. And their nefarious purpose is to assassinate Callista and blame it on Alonso to you know sow seeds of you know, chaos in euphoric so that possibly they can get the upper hand in the war uh, so basically what what Callista is, we cut back to Callista and uh, Alonzo, and basically what she's saying is that she is wants to allow him to stay on world uh, no longer banished, but he can't come back into society because it would, it would it would kind of look like a sign of weakness in Callista if she just you know went back, just flipped and flopped on her decisions. So basically she'll allow Lonzo to stay on planet and stay here, uh, but he has to stay out here in this in this hunting lodge out in the wilderness. which I mean I guess if better than being banished to have to live somewhere that you've never lived before against your will, being on planet where things are somewhat familiar uh, is better. Uh, so really, uh, but it has to remain a secret. He has to be out here in secret, and no one can see him. Uh, not even Callista, because she is queen, so she has... She's watched, and, and she's watched very closely, obviously, for her own protection, but she was able to, or she needed to take the risk to come out here this one time. And so she she's fine with it, but she can never do it again. Uh, we then cut to Shirilla and Rourke. they out uh, outside of the Summer Palace, talking, and basically she's explaining that uh, the Pulvadons have eaten away at the inside of the tree. They're looking for something. Um, and they're always looking, and so they're eating the tree as a way to look for answers. I guess uh, Pulvadons, you know, they're they're vermin. That's what they do. Uh, so, uh. So basically, we cut back to uh, Alonzo and uh, Callista. And this is where she's explaining that the queen of all people cannot be seen to break the law. So, and by undoing his banishment, that would be breaking the law because she, she was derelict in permitting the decision to be made, his banishment. But once she assented to it, it became law and so by undoing it she can't. She'd be breaking the law although I don't, if one, if one of her words makes law wouldn't the other one also make it unlaw or a new law? So uh, the queen, so like she said, the queen of all people cannot be seen to break the law and so although I do I bid you return, your banishment must remain in effect. Uh, and Alonzo then says something uh, kind of I don't I don't know if it's it cuts to the quick of, of Callista in a way. She says, I begin to realize why you and Prom, Primus are apart. You are queen first and woman second. Uh, woman being, you know, like someone who loves and, and wants to be with their husband. But she sees her duty as being very, coming first uh, above personal things. And uh, Calista, in another cheesecake shot, just really close up on that butt, um, says, And you, Alonzo? He says, I am a man in love, Callista. dot, 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 with a queen. And then for too long, she says nothing, then turns too quickly and says, I must go. And uh, Alonzo wants her to come back tonight to see him just one more time. And she says she can't. And he says, but the risk has already been taken. You've already left the capital. What harm in seeing me once more before you return? She says she cannot. She gets on her alien horse and rides away. Uh, back to the summer palace, and uh, in the forest, she she uh, rides by some hidden branks, Bra- branks. I don't know how to say that. It's just it's a weird alien word, and I don't know if I'm saying it. Bronx. I don't think it's Bronx because that'd be an O. So brank, brank, branks. Uh, they say that they're going to wait until dark to to do the do the assassination. Um, and and along her ride back, she's crying. You know, tears are pouring from her eyes because she's sad, uh, or and also conflicted, because I mean, she is uh, she's a she's a woman. She's not human, but she's she has feelings and desires and urges and things like that. And her husband's gone, so she's probably lonely. Uh, but she's later in the summer palace, staring out the window, kind of being sad uh, when. The branch that that section of the Summer Palace is resting on breaks, and that part of the Summer Palace starts to crumble, and she almost falls out, but she is able to get uh, back into the solid part of the Summer Palace before the part that she is in falls and crumbles and shatters on the ground, and she then just says, after this happens, she says, enough, too long have I I suffered only as the Queen, and I and I will enter this night as a woman. So basically it seems like she's going back to Alonzo's to um, uh, do do the deed, uh, uh, basically have an affair. Uh, so she says she has a command before she leaves. She says, if I'm not back by morning, burn the tree. Rourke and Sharilla are taken aback by this because it holds the palace. And uh, Calista says the p- the palace belongs to a dead past, and will soon collapse in ruins if something is not done. Burning the tree will at least eliminate temptation, the pulvedons, and save the other trees from being infested by the destructive ghosts of that same past. So, she's gonna yeah she's gonna rid the rid the tree of pulvedons and itself um, by burning it. So she gets back on her horse and she rides back through the forest and she is followed, uh, I'm assuming at a safe following distance by the Branks and um, they notice, they they see that she's going back towards the lodge so that'll be easier to blame the murder on Alonzo the closer she is to the lodge. She sits and pauses outside the lodge for a long time before riding on she doesn't get off her horse, she doesn't go inside, she she rides on, and she rides to a, um, a part of the a, a, a glade, a, a treeless area, and she uses her hex powers to communicate down through the ground to the pulvidons, or a group of pulvidons, and she has a conversation with them, asking why are they eating the tree, and she says they want they don't want anything from the tree they merely searching for her for her spirit in the wood and so she says, then you do not hunger they're not eating it because they're hungry and they can't find any other food. They hunger for her for the special night that they had when when the all the magic was g- going buck wild uh, they ask why she's been gone so long why have they why have, why has she neglected them? Are they not her friends? do they not love her? She asks them to never go back to the tree, and um, she asks for forgiveness. She's forgotten that her kingdom is more than war and the affairs of states. That she knows now that it is the, it is life in all its forms, and it is the quality and caring of that life that is important. Um, but as she's, you know, kind of coming to terms with what she needs to do, or what she prior needs to prioritize as a, as a queen, uh, one of the Pulvadons gets frickin' shot! By a laser beam. And she turns around and it's that group of the Branks. And they uh, all are all holding guns. And she asks if they were sent by Duloc. Because obviously she doesn't know about their affiliation. Or their still affiliation with the Citadel. They say that Duloc is but a puppet. And his love for her is the string by which he is made to dance. She asks who's, who is the puppet's master. And one says not to tell her. But the other one says why does it matter she's going to be dead. Um, and uh, it's revealed that Harry Hokum is the one who sent them. And the way they say it is that your grave has been dug by Harry Hokum, and then they say, and we are here to see that the grave is filled. They're about to say filled, but uh, a big tree branch hits the one who's talking on the head and knocks him out. And then uh, Callista uses her hex powers to conjure a giant image of Primus. Uh, And Primus is, I mean... Primus is formidable, so they are terrified, these Branks are, and they're afraid that it's going to kill them, and, uh, oh, did I say that Dulic was the one who hit that guy on the head with that tree branch? Uh, okay, uh, or Alonzo, uh, and Alonzo, uh, uses the distraction to shoot all of the Branks, killing them all dead, uh, which is, which is good. Uh, and the reason that he knew what was happening, uh, well, basically he overheard he overheard what they said about him being used. So he he he's now getting revenge. But after he has killed all of them, he says to Callista that he saw her pause at the lodge, and then saw the the Branks following her after she went. Um, he she asked that. You know, he risks his life for hers, and Alonzo then is like, and now I've also seen what image you conjured in your moment of need—an uh, image of Primus, her husband. And she says, perhaps, and yet, since it was shaped by my hex powers, it took the form of the Brank, uh, the form of what the Branks fear most. So it was the Branks' minds that conjured Primus, not Callista. Alonzo then asks, since it wasn't her that shaped it, can he still hope? And she sort of pauses and says, please, Alonzo. So. And he says, forgive me, my queen. I will leave you now. And she, uh, it says, and again, her eyes cannot contain what she feels, both gazing inward and outward at fallen branks, at adoring pulvidons, at departing love. And she says, Alonzo, wait, as you say, the risk has already been taken, and this is one night I ventured not as queen, but as woman. And so, basically, um, she is going to, she sleeps, she sleeps with Alonzo. Uh, at dawn, uh, he asks, must you leave so soon? Uh, and she says, well, and then it then cuts to noon, and she says, now I must go, Alonzo uh, and, and we see in... Now there's a cheesecake shot of Alonzo. But, I mean, he's just wearing pants, but he's just not wearing a shirt. And we see his his, his torso uncovered um, as she gets on her alien horse and rides away. Uh, she's It says, nearing the arbor, at first she cannot accept what turns to smoke in her way. So she's realizing, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, the thing I said and she gets back and she asks what have they done and basically what she asked them to do you were not back by morning and so they burned the tree even though she had solved the problem and so that the tree would have not been eaten anymore and would have at least maintained whatever structural integrity it had left but she got distracted by the affairs of the flesh which i guess is kind of i mean you know she was she was realizing that As queen, she needs to care more about the life on the planet and not just the affairs of state. But it was by caring more about life and love and the affairs of the flesh that a a ruling by her as queen uh, kind of went too far. Um, And then the final sort of line of the issue is, and finally she comes to see with empty eyes too cold for tears, that some decrees cannot be cancelled. Certain enchantments can never be regained. While far away and barely heard, the ghost of a Pulvedon weeps. So a lot of the Pulvedons probably died in that fire, which is sad. Uh, and then there's a little blurb for uh, what's coming up in the Omega Man. A new a new creative team is taking over. Todd Klein and Sean McManus steer the Omegans on a strange new course, things will never be quite the same again once you've entered the unquiet void. That seems... Well, not just the loud void. I guess it doesn't have that same sort of ominous tone, now does it? So, that is the Omega Man. Uh, uh, number 25. Like the Legion of Superheroes, I feel like you need a lot of background information to make sure that these stories make any sense to anyone. Uh, so that's tough for me and tough for you guys all, because... Uh, um, I may be leaving things out that I don't mean to, but, uh, I, I mean, alien stuff always gets weird, because, I mean, they all have their own, you know, weird c- c- idiosyncrasies and stuff like that, uh, but, I mean, it was fine, it's a fine, it's not very, it's not very superhero-y, uh, at least this one isn't, uh, I think this is just one particular issue, I think probably the next issues of, of, The Omega Men will probably be more of the Omega Men doing stuff. But, I mean, Calista's a member of the Omega Men, so she counts. You have to focus on her sometimes. Uh, But let's move on to the final issue of this episode, Superman number 406. Like all the rest, January 10th, 1985, cover date, April 1985. And we've got three debuts uh, to the podcast, not to the issue uh, or to the series. Uh, to the universe. We have uh, Perry White, uh, the editor of the uh, Daily Planet, uh, because obviously in issue by issue Golden Age, uh, it is still uh, George Taylor, and uh, he has not been replaced by Perry White yet. Uh, We also have Lana Lang, who is Clark Kent's uh, childhood best friend. Uh, And I think, I don't it depends on what continuity you're in and whether or not they have been romantically involved at all. Uh, and then we have Morgan Edge, the uh, CEO owner of uh, the GSN, uh, the, 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 the communications conglomerate that bought the Daily Planet and made Clark Kent a on-screen uh, reporter rather than a newspaper reporter. So let's uh, talk about the authors or the creative team behind it. So this one's a little bit different than the previous ones that we've talked about because this uh, issue actually has two stories in it. It has the main story, the one that is on the cover, which is the fight for the right to be Superman. And then it also has a shorter one called Can You Stump Superman? So uh, in... Uh, The the Fight for the Right to be Superman, it was written by Paul Kupperberg, penciled by Irving H. Novick, inked by David Hunt, lettered by Gaspar Saladino, and colored by Eugene D'Angelo. And then the Can You Stump Superman, the second story, was written by Craig Boldman, uh, penciled by Alex Saviuk, uh, inked by Carl Kessel, lettered by Milton Snappen, colored by Eugene D'Angelo. Uh, and I do think it's kind of interesting that still Superman is a multi-story or at some points multi-story uh, comic book very similar to how it started it being Superman and being like four or five stories of of all Superman. And I'd, and it seems like that is only a sometimes, I guess it depends on if the story uh, the main story takes up more than, You know, it takes up less than 24 pages, then there needs to be a second story. So, this is an issue where there are two stories. So, let's get into the first one the fight for the right to be Superman. So, uh, the cover has a man in a wrestler's, I guess, leotard. Uh, Well, it's got pant legs, so I guess jumpsuit. Uh, with a big belt with an S, uh, an S sort of similar to Superman's S, and he's wearing a balaclava, and he's holding Superman by the hair, and is about to punch him in the face. And then it says, the fight for the right to be Superman. Uh, So we start with uh, this same guy, but he is in his bed sleeping, no shirt on, he's a big guy. And he is having a dream, his name is Mo Rambo. And he used to be a wrestler named Superman. And in his dream, he is in his wrestling costume, which looks a lot like Superman's costume. You know, it's got the red boots, uh, the blue, obviously, the blue clothing, blue pants, blue shirt. But it's a tank top shirt, uh, red underwear on the outside, uh, S symbol, but it's on a belt, uh, and his red uh, balaclava. Uh, he asks, where are you hiding, coward? Come and get me. And Superman comes from above and says, I'm coming, Rambo. I'm tired of running from you. And uh, Super, uh, Rambo says, I knew you was afraid. Only a coward would have coward done what you done. Steal my name. I want it back, Superman. You understand. I want it back. And then he pile drives uh, Superman uh, he was a... Rambo explains that he was a wrestler for 20 years and built his Superman before anyone heard of you, the other Superman. Then you came along calling yourself Superman, and suddenly I was a stock. Bring us the real Superman, they'd yell and laugh. I was the real Superman. Blast you, me. Uh, and he says, I gotta fight you for the title. That's okay, because only the champ deserves the name. And from this minute on, that's me. And this entire time, he's just been like beating Superman so bad like 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 I said he piledrived him he's in one scene he's jumping on Superman's back uh, like he's trying to crack his back and in the final scene of this dream Rambo is standing above Superman saying you hear me world I am Superman me mo superman rambo and then he wakes up mid-dream sort of yelling and his brother Jake comes in and says why are you shouting I'm trying to sleep. And Rambo says, well, I just had another one of them dreams, Jake. Uh, So the story begins. We then see Superman and he is coming back from 93 million miles uh, from Metropolis. Um, He is out in space and he says, it's good to be back in your own neighborhood after an extended stay in distant galaxies even if that stay was necessary to prevent an intergalactic war. And also to to have fun with the legion of superheroes and beat up a bunch of supermen it's cool uh he comments that the sun uh looks a little bit different sunspot activity is very very uh high uh but he's going to put the sunspots to good use uh because superheated hydrogen uh will give him his costume a thorough cleaning and you know you hate to have a stinky costume uh, then the, co- uh, then the comic says something buckwild and says the distance between the sun and earth would require months for any man-made craft to traverse. At the speed of light, the man of steel makes the trip in a little over eight minutes. That's not, that's not how that works at all. If he had went to the speed of light, he would have, I mean, shot a hole straight through the earth. I'm pretty sure. I'm no physicist, but speed of light is much faster than eight minutes. I think, uh, I-, I could be wrong. If any physicists out there want to tell me I'm wrong, uh, that's fine. I'd rather be right. So Superman is going to go take a little sleep, but uh, he only gets uh, a little bit of, of sleep because he hears um, a plane is crashing. Uh, so he he he's done this a million times, and Superman even says this is easy. All you got to do is uh, get the landing gear out, sort of mix, level off the flight, and then bring it down to a safe landing. Um But Superman's having some difficulty. The plane feels heavier and heavier. He's getting weaker and weaker. Uh, And luckily he's able to get the plane down and taxiing on its own. But Superman sort of falls to the ground. um, And is kind of confused about why he suddenly started losing his super strength. Uh, We then cut back to uh, the apartment that uh, Mo Rambo and his brother Jake live in. And uh, Mo is telling his brother about his dream. And apparently he has these dreams a lot. Mostly about sports. He uh, remembers he dreamed about the winner of the World Series and the Super Bowl. And also about the winner of the Stanley Cup. uh, Before they all happened. And he made his brother and his friends a lot of money. Because they bet on it. So Mo asks his brother if he believes him. That he can beat Superman uh, and reclaim his name. And Jake says that he does. And he's going to see it... See to it that it comes true. So then we cut back to Superman later in the day. And he is testing whether his super strength is still working uh, by lifting up a big rock. And he's like, yeah, this is super easy. No problem at all. So it must, it's still weird, but it must be back now. Uh, he's then flying to Metropolis. And here's some explosions. And uh, there's no work being done on no blast planned on construction sites today. So something nefarious must be happening. Uh, We then see a group of bank robbers, I guess, but they're using a tank, and the tank has some sort of attachment that is, it's at the top, and it's basically like four cannons in a sort of X shape, and it's spinning around and just like shooting out explosives, which seems like the most inaccurate, inefficient way to have a tank. And also, why are they robbing a bank if they can afford a tank? Just use that money for other things. But, uh, But okay. Superman is gonna, he's like, I'll make quick work of this. Uh, He uses his heat vision to destroy some bombs, and then he'll use his strength to stop the spinning, and and kind of maybe bend the barrels, who knows. But instead of stopping it, he grabs hold, and it is flinging him around like a top. Uh, He can't stop it. Uh, So he is thrown off of it by centrifugal force, uh, lands on some uh, kind of a wrestling motif or an homage. He hits some electric wires, and they spring him, or, or as the book says, sprawling him back towards the tank, and he falls into it, uh, breaking it into little tiny pieces. Uh, the police arrive and uh, arrest the bank robbers, and out from the wreckage comes Superman. We then cut to a warehouse, Ajax warehouse, where... Jake has brought all of the uh, big gangs of Metropolis, or all the leaders at least of the big gangs, and he is suggesting that they all join together in one big gang and he be the late leader. They laugh at that because he's just a two-bit punk with a four-bit gang. Why would he be in charge? And Jake explains that he uh, will get rid of the biggest problem for the gangs of Metropolis Superman. So he has a solution to that. And it is the original Superman, the wrestler. And uh, this is just funny enough of a joke uh, that the other gang members agree that if Jake's enforcer, the original Superman, Mo Rambo, can defeat Superman, they will make him leader of a a, a combined gang. But if not, they're going to blow his head off uh, with a gun. So Superman is flying around metropolis and he is going to uh, fly to wgbs which is the the world galaxy broadcasting station i think is what it stands for i might be wrong but it's where clark kent works so presumably he's gonna you know be clark kent for a while but instead of landing he is compelled to keep flying and he is compelled to fly to the old manufacturing district And then he is, uh, compelled to fly down into this Ajax warehouse where Mo Rambo is waiting, uh, and, uh, once Superman flies through the roof, breaking through the wall, because just like Golden Age Superman, regular Superman just loves destroying property, uh, the fight will begin. So, uh, the fight does begin and it, it kind of, it, it happens very similar to the dream in so fact insofar as Mo Rambo is having no problem at all uh, with uh, defeating Superman. He's you know doing lots of wrestler moves on him. He's spinning him over his head, and he's throwing him into the ropes and and uh, basically he beats Superman. he knocks him out against the floor uh, and Jake is all very excited for Mo. And uh, you know they're he's he's like you did it you did it oh my gosh I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be uh, the leader of this gang uh, and Mo asks his brother yeah that's that's great Jake but I want to know is when are we gonna tell the rest of the world about this that I defeated Superman and I'm the Superman and Jake says well no we got to keep that a secret I don't know why uh, you have to keep it a secret but. Uh, Mo Rambo doesn't like the fact that he has to keep it a secret and he says that it ain't fair everybody knew about him now it's my turn to be Superman again we got to tell people I got that coming to me and he grabs Jake by the uh lapels and kind of you know brings him up above his head uh, and is going to probably like you know pummel him or punch him a bunch and and beat him up but all the other gang bosses are scared because like oh you know Jake Rambo's enforcer has gone nuts I'm not sticking around to see what happens like see a man kill his brother Um, Superman aches all over on the sidelines he's barely standing up by use of the ropes Um, but he's gotta he's gotta stop Mo Rambo from hurting his brother or anybody else and so he says stop it if you want more action, I'm still not out of it. Uh, Joe Rambo says, I beat you once. I can beat, I can do it again. Uh, and Superman says, Maybe, but we won't know till we try, will we, Mo? And Mo says, Don't call me that. I ain't Mo. I'm Superman. And as he sort of does a flying headbutt at Superman, uh, Superman kind of holds his ground, and Mo's head collides with his chest, and Mo falls to the ground. And Superman says, "I didn't, f- I didn't feel a thing. In fact, I feel great. Like all my strengths return. But that still doesn't explain explain why it was fading on me in the first place, or what drew me here to this bizarre match." Super uh, Mo takes off his mask and says, "I ain't gonna fight you no more, Superman. It's over." And Superman's like, "What's over?" And Mo says, "The dream, uh, the dream is over." I, I dream things and if I remember it the dream comes true and I don't know I guess it, it, the dream is over and so now things go back to normal and, and Superman's like yeah maybe or maybe it was that solar flare I flew through the other day but I've been through hundreds before with no effect or maybe dot 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 I wonder dot 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 and that's where it ends and uh, the, the next issue is the peril of the pass along power so maybe we'll Maybe there will be some uh, explanation in that issue, um, which goes on sale February 14th in 1985, but we won't get there for probably months um, since we're only in mid-January, uh, which I I say that every single time. Um, but it's it's true. Uh, then we are going to move on to Can You Stump Superman, which is a sort of non... I mean, it's a filler. It's very much filler. It is about Superman... Uh, Volunteering at the Lung Foundation fundraiser uh, for, uh, I mean, to, to raise money for, for lungs, and I'm assuming to deal with lung cancer, uh, maybe. Um, it doesn't say cancer, but it just says Lung Foundation. Um, and so Superman uh, does a sort of, he takes challenges uh, for money. And you know, first he does an arm wrestle with a guy, but he brings that guy's um, oh backhoe, and uh, uh, he arm wrestles that uh, piece of large machinery and easily wins. And Perry Mason's like, "Hey, isn't this a little one-sided, Superman? After all, anything you we can do, you can do better." And Superman says, "Good point. Uh, I'm gonna. You know what? I'm gonna. I'm gonna up the ante here. Due to a minor." physiological difference between earth people and kryptonians i there's one thing that i can't do and whoever can guess correctly will win a tour of my fortress of solitude you have to donate in order to guess but uh you if you guess right you get to tour of the fortress of solitude which is cool and so basically uh superman Uh, does all these different things you know one says that he has no ear for music so he gets a bunch of instruments and plays beethoven on them he makes a a one-man philharmonic orchestra uh and then yeah so he says to that guy not even close no cigar friend um and then in the in the audience superman sees two uh sort of Scruffy, two of Metropolis' scruffier hoodlums, Lenny Haas and George Pfeffer, which is a reference to *Of Mice and Men*. With Lenny and George, Lenny being a Lenny even has a rabbit on his shirt. Uh, So if you've seen *Of Mice and Men*, you'll know that reference to that. Uh, Another person, well, basically Lenny and George are going to try to get you're going to try to win, try to figure out what the answer is and win, and then they're going to do nefarious things in the Fortress of Solitude. We'll learn about that later. Um, a woman says that I bet Superman can't juggle, so to prove that he can, he sees a car that is about to, that has run a red light and is about to get in a crash, so he takes everything breakable out of the car, uh, which is a bunch of watermelons and the driver. And so then when he stops it, when he brings it to a sudden halt, he doesn't break anything. And then he juggles the driver and the watermelon. That's that's fun. Um, and so then uh, the, you know, th- he does a bunch of other challenges throughout the morning. Um, he does. He someone bets that he can't whistle while eating a box of crackers, and he thinks he's won. But uh, a bunch of dogs come, and Superman was actually whistling ultrasonically. Uh, and he says, "Close but no cigar." Uh, again, uh, he. F- Superman then flies off, says, "You know, keep thinking of challenges. I gotta, I gotta handle some business really quickly." Uh, and basically, he goes back to Gal- the Galaxy Building and uh, makes a token appearance as Clark Kent, where his boss, Morgan Edge, yells at him and says, "That why aren't you down at the uh, Superman show? Do you want people to think that GBS isn't civic-minded?" And M- Morgan Edge blows smoke in. Clark Kent's face and Clark Kent says sorry Mr. Edge I'll get over there right away as he's leaving the Galaxy Communication Building he sees George Pfeffer uh, hanging out by the wall smoking a cigarette and um, Clark thinks oh I'll make his day by phoning uh, him Uh, we don't know what that means until the end but Uh, So basically he's phoning. He's going to make a phone call. Uh, Superman gets back to the fund drive. uh, And someone bets that he can't shave. He can't grow a beard. Uh, So Superman, I guess because he thought that this would happen, spent some time under a red sun lamp. Why would you do that? Uh, So that his hair would grow naturally. And then using a Kryptonian metal razor, shaves off uh, some stubble. So he wins. Uh, we then learn about George and Lenny's plan. Uh, he just got so George just got tipped off by the, uh, to the answer by Clark Kent making a phone call. And he, he's going to give Lenny some plastic explosive. So when uh, Lenny goes up there and guesses correctly, he can plant it in the Fortress of Solitude and then they can blow it up later and be big shots in, in the Metropolis crime scene. Uh, we then see Superman uh, succeeding at a challenge of being able to go to sleep because everyone must think that um, Superman is an elf in Dungeons and Dragons and never goes to sleep, uh, but he does. He's sleeping while flying midair. Um, uh, Superman then wakes up. Uh, we see a, a newsstand, uh, a, a, a a news the the newsstand attendant uh, puts his cigarette or misses the ashtray with his cigarette and it lands on some magazines. We then cut back to Superman uh, and a woman is asking him, you know, I bet you can't. I don't think Superman knows how to smell or is able to smell. So what do I have behind my back? She asks. And behind her back are some flowers and he says, I smell African violets and smoke. And so Superman rushes off to the newsstand nearby and sucks up all the smoke and fire. And he explains, uh, I drew the smoke and flames into my mouth, contained them there, and expelled them into the upper atmosphere. And uh, the next up is Lenny, and he says, Here's my dose, Superman. I challenge you to sneeze. And uh, Superman says, Sneeze? Well, my only reply to that is, Bua, chew And he makes a big sneezing and sneezes all of their clothes off, except for their undershirts and their underwear. And Lenny also has rabbits on his underwear, because he loves wabbits. Uh, Superman then asks officers to, uh, check these men and their or these clothes that just came off these men for explosives. They find it and they, uh, arrest them. And Lenny says, you guessed wrong, George. And George says, shut up, rabbit brain. I got the answer straight from Superman's buddy, Clark Kent. We then see Superman sort of thinking back to making a fake phone call as Clark Kent saying, Superman can't sneeze. Um, Eventually, they say the contest is over, and thanks to Superman, they've raised a record number of contributions and pledges, but no one guessed the answer. Uh, Perry, I almost said Perry Mason, uh, Perry White uh, uh, says that he would like a word with Superman, and he declares that uh, the Daily Planet would match the contributions to uh, uh, the the Foundation, and says Superman have a cigar, and uh, Superman says, well, you know I don't smoke, Perry. And uh, Perry says, right. And what's more, I know that you couldn't smoke even if you wanted to. And it's revealed that, you know, him saying no cigar is a sort of reference and uh, his respiratory system as a Kryptonian won't allow tobacco smoke to enter. Uh, so he only brought it into his mouth, not into his lungs. And uh, so, so that's, what, that's what he can't do. Superman can't smoke. He can't inhale tobacco. Um, and uh, it the comic ends by saying so I stumped Superman, but half you have you ever noticed Lana? Even that guy's shortcomings seem like blankety blank virtues. Um, so that's yeah, that's it. Probably, like, very silly uh, second story, but I mean the first story wasn't very you know uh, I guess bombastic or impactful. But I mean I guess it was a setup more than a full blown story that's going to do it for this week's episode of issue by issue crisis. Be sure to reach out on our socials, which are in the show notes, Instagram, Twitter, way more, you know, active on Instagram, visual medium, Instagram just works better. I'm going to try to be better about Twitter. Although I think the platform itself is dying. Maybe I'll get on threads since that's an easy, you know, connect between Instagram and that, but, uh, Instagram posting all the covers, uh, Posting Primo panels when I remember to do that. Uh, I, I, I'm gonna get better about doing that again because I think it's fun to see um, the panels and the, some of the Buckwild stuff that's in there. Not gonna post any cheesecake shots because that's just basically uh, very close to pornography, so I don't really need that on my page. But uh, be sure to you know do your part as a podcast listener. Uh, for this entertainment, if you want to call it that, by heading over to iTunes or Spotify or wherever you want to rate and review the podcast, because I think it does help. I, I you know, every podcast asks you to do that, and I'm going to do the exact same because apparently it works. Uh, and I'm not going to argue against something that has clearly uh, been doing the trick. So head over there, uh, and some, you know, any good inter- reviews or anything, I'll, I'll shout out on the show if there's any. You know, like, this podcast saved my life. Uh, I was driving, and it kept me awake with this man's monotonous uh, talking to himself. Kept me awake and allowed me to get my sick uncle to the hospital. I don't know, something like that. Don't do that, though. Don't lie in the reviews. I'll be able to tell. But... Let's uh, let's stop my ramblings, and uh, let's just close it out. As always, I am your host, Nick Byers. I want to get some sort of good tagline here at the end, but I can't seem to think of anything ever. Uh, see you next time.